So here's the plan. We are going to be launching into a brand new series on uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, one of the duties of the church, I don't know if you know this, but we are entrusted with teaching what is called the whole counsel of the Word of God. And for, uh, for the most part, I think we do a pretty nice job of that. Now, granted, we take a long time to get through certain books of the Bible, but we at least give you guys a good dose of the Old Testament, maybe to some of your chagrin. But our bread and butter at TRP has been in the past. It's Jesus and the stories of his life, death, and his resurrection as retold by these gospel authors. John is by far the weirdest of the four stories of Jesus's life. Some of the early church fathers have dubbed this book the spiritual gospel, mainly to account for the unique depiction of Jesus that we receive in this book. He's much more esoteric in the book of John than he is in Matthew and Mark and Luke. In fact, I've been listening to the audio version of the book of John on uh, my Bible app, and Jesus almost sounds kind of rude in the way that he talks. That's, a, that's an interpretation here by the, uh, the readers of the story, but just the way that he's engaging. It's very different from the other books. He makes all kinds of strange claims about himself that he does not make in the other books. In fact, the way that the book of John begins is this really dense, theologically dense poem that explores the pre-existence of Jesus, the fact that he has always been, that he is eternal. No other gospels seem to hit on this. And in the beginning of the book of John, it's, it's beautiful, but it's completely dissimilar from the other gospels. And also, finally, in contrast to the other synoptic gospels, Jesus talks in the book of John a lot. You'll get these passages where he is just going off on the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and just going into these long discourses. Uh, which has caused me some pause as I think about how we're going to present this. But nonetheless, we're going to be spending most of our time this year in the Gospel of John. We're going to be wrestling with these stories and the teachings, and I'm very, very, very excited about beginning this. But, but, having endured what we endured together a year and a half or two years ago as we traveled through the book of Mark, our 55-week series on the book of Mark. I knew that we would probably have to build in some, uh, some breaks in our discussion and our teaching on the book of John. And what I would like to do is um, preach about four or five weeks on John, but then take a week off here and there to remind ourselves, or if you happen to be new, to inform you about who we are as a church, and this is what we are up to tonight. So before we start our series on the book of John, I want to take a moment and to remind ourselves and to reorganize ourselves and to refocus ourselves on who we are as TRP. Now, please know that this is difficult for me because I'm not one for gimmicks. I'm not one for an invite a friend Sunday. I'm not one for giving away flat screen TVs to bring people into the door. I'm not one for self-promotion. I have a hard time figuring out what to put on my Facebook page or on my Twitter. Like, I never send out any tweets just because that's out there and it's permanent. And if you're going to put something out there, it should be good. That's how I think about it. So I don't, I'm always scared and hesitant to do any of that. I don't like uh, talking about ourselves. In fact, one of my favorite anecdotes about uh, the controversial pastor named Rob Bell used 
used to have a church in Michigan. When they first started, now for some odd reason, on the first week they had 1,200 people come to the church. So there was a, quite a bit of buzz, but his thought as a pastor was, I don't even want people to know where this building is. I don't even want to put our name outside. If they are going to come and if they want to be a part of it, they'll find it. That's a bit intense, I think. Um, but I struggle with self-promotion. So a series that focuses on this particular expression of the local church, which is just one amongst many, even in town, is a bit of a stretch for me. But I do believe in TRP. I believe in what God is calling us to do as that distinct local expression of the church. I believe that we exist in order to provide a home for some folks that might not fit Elsewhere, Salisbury has a lot of great churches, but as I look around the room and as I have conversations with you, it seems as though many of you have adopted this place as home, at least for a while, where this is where you, you um, relate well to people. I believe that our brand of teaching and learning is a good thing for the body of Christ in Salisbury. I believe that our awareness and our engagement with issues, whether they be biblical or theological or social in nature, is an important witness. And if I can do anything to inspire our collective participation in this ministry, I want to do that. And not just because I'm the pastor of this ministry, but because I believe in it. So sporadically, what I'm going to be doing throughout this series on John, we're also going to be having a concurrent series where I'll be inviting you guys to partner with us to renew your commitments to this group of individuals or just by explaining what TRP is. So our series will be called TRP Is. And to preview where we're going here, I've sketched out some of the attributes that I think define some of our core values. TRP is united in diversity. TRP is intellectually honest. TRP is rigorous in its approach to the Bible. TRP is missionally engaged. TRP is cooperative Baptist, which many of you have no idea what that means. TRP is rooted and grounded and actively trusting in Jesus. Now, these are not placed in order, so if you think that me putting Jesus last says something, it doesn't. Uh, but this week, I want to suggest that TRP is a collective of stories. Now, in contrast to what you're going to get in this talk tonight, and something that's odd for me, there's no biblical text here. I don't believe that we do ourselves any favors by me talking about uh, this, this portion of my life and then a, a smacking a Bible verse onto it. I don't think that does justice to the Word of God, nor do I think that that's good practice. So tonight, what I would like to do instead is offer a testimony. And let us not forget that testimony is a deeply biblical practice. It's God's people gathering, at least in part, to be encouraged by the stories of one another and God's work in our collective lives. So that's where we're going to be heading this evening. You guys with me? Are you good? Are you excited to be back at school? Moving on to the next question. Are you excited that football season is coming up? That's a very politically motivated uh, question as well. Let's move on to something else. I'll just get into the sermon here. Okay. 
Last spring, Tessa, our super talented, extremely underpaid in-house graphic designer, developed the piece of art that you see behind me, or at least a version of it. If you've been with us before, you probably have walked past a version of this on the way through those doors back there at the, at the opening of the sanctuary, and hopefully you've taken some time to notice what it says. It reads, whatever your story, there is room for you here. For the leadership of TRP, this is an adage that we take super seriously. We recognize that underneath our overwhelmingly homogenous complexion and socioeconomic status, you know, we're pretty much middle-class white people, Underneath all of that, this place and each person in this place who claims to be a part of TRP is is a living embodiment of their own unique story. Positively stated, this is your unique gifts and talents that make TRP what it is. It's Tessa's creativeness. It's Josh Revel's precision and ingenuity. It's Sam's passion and energy. It's the Custer's quiet but unyielding commitment. It's the distinctive ways that our many moms and dads, but primarily the moms, protect and love and support their children. I said primarily the moms because they're usually the ones on the front lines that I have seen and that I have been encouraged by and how they parent their children. It's Daniel's wit, it's Jory's thirst for knowledge, it's Vicky's compassion. It's the way that Kayla can befriend anyone ever at any time. It's Laura's sometimes brutal honesty and her sensitivity. It's the fact that Laura's husband, Evan, hand paints his own board game pieces. People, that is commitment. If nothing else, he's a 34-year-old man who hand paints his own board game pieces. It's Brandon's entrepreneurial spirit. It's my dad's optimism. It's the heart behind Christie's home cooking. It's Chloe's engagement in social justice issues. And it's her dad, Tracy's skepticism of all social justice issues. And it's many, many other qualities that we all live out each and every day. Truly, there is room for you and for your story here in this place. I want to challenge you for a moment and just ask you to think about your story that you're bringing to the table. To think about the unique giftings and qualities that you can offer this place. And this isn't like a sales pitch. I'm not going to trick you here. I just want you to, to consider. And this could be your first week here at TRP. It doesn't matter about whether or not you're going to invest these gifts and these stories here. But just what it is that you offer the local church. The way that God has created you the gifting and the calling that he's given you. Think about that for a moment. Now that you have all of that beautiful, positive energy, soak in that for a second. Because I'm about to go in a different direction. You guys know that I tend to be a bit more cynical than some. So just take this with a grain of salt. I don't want to disrupt all of your positive energy. But I think it's fair to say that most people, when given that prompt, they tend to focus not on their strengths, but on their weaknesses. Perhaps it was even difficult for you in the handful of seconds that we had silence in this room for you to think about the positive things, the positive way that your story works out that you bring to bear in the life of the local church or in any different area of your life. In fact, the way that this piece is is written, it almost assumes that we are attempting to comfort you 
concerning these negative parts of your story, the things that you hide from others, maybe even the things that you hide from yourselves, the things that, you, that bring you embarrassment and shame, the sufferings, the trials, the adversity that you have experienced, these parts of your story are the things that you cannot seem to get past. Now, this is purely anecdotal. I don't have a survey for this. I don't have any sort of numbers or statistics here. But it also seems like these are the parts of our stories that create the most significant complications for individuals to enter into the church, not just TRP, but any church at all, because we are so scared that if anyone knew who we really were, if anyone knew who we really were, that it would change everything. When we walk past a sign or see something like this, we think, oh, that's the church just talking nonsense. If they really knew my story, there would be no room for me here. More than that, our negative experiences, our mistakes, and perhaps some of our present and lived realities, they often prohibit us from receiving the grace of Christ, not just stepping foot into a, a local church, but from thinking that there would be a God who loves me and cares about me, knows me. The things that we bring to bear, we can't get past that. Of course, those, those truths or those feelings that we have, they're a lie, but it's easy for us to believe them because of what we have seen or because what we have heard or because what we have experienced. A lot of people in this room have baggage, and I'm not saying that because I know your stories. I'm saying that because I'm playing the numbers here. Anytime people have gathered together, there's baggage, and a lot of time that baggage is at the hands of Christians or at the hands of the church or at the hands of the people that were supposed to protect you and advocate for you and support you, yet now those words have taken residence in your mind and not allowed you to trust and not allowed you to feel acceptance or self-worth because of them. Even for myself as a pastor, I wrestle with the promise that a community would accept me if they really knew now, I get up here and I dance around and I tell you guys a lot of stories, but if you really knew, would there be room for me here? And even beyond that, would the creator and sustainer of the universe create room for me? Theologically, let me, let me help you here because maybe for some of you as you're sitting there, a pastor shouldn't be asking these questions. Theologically, yes, I know these things are true, but in your, in your deepest essence, like the way that you feel and the way that you process and the way that you experience knowing who you are and hearing the things that you have heard and being in the situations that you may have been, is it difficult for you to accept that there is room for you here in this place and that there is room for you in the kingdom of God, our stories, they can carry that much weight. They can carry that much baggage. They can carry that much hurt. There's a Franciscan priest and spiritual guide, one of Marnie's favorites, named Richard Rohr, who refers to these truths of our lives that we attempt to keep hidden as part of our shadow selves. If it was known, if people knew who we were, we wouldn't be welcomed, we wouldn't be accepted, we wouldn't be included. A while back, um, one of our mutual friends, Stephanie Meyer, 
she mentioned that it would be helpful or at least somewhat interesting for you guys and for her maybe to hear some of my story, which I found to be strange because I feel like I share a good bit of my story with you guys on a week-to-week basis. Many of you know this. It's not news. Born to Christian parents, raised in the church, educated in a private Christian school from kindergarten through 12th grade. I graduated with 16 people. That will mess you up for a good little bit of time. There's a recovery program that some people are in. After After that, I went to a conservative Bible college in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. No, it wasn't Amish, even if that's what you're thinking. It wasn't. It was just conservative Bible college. After that, I was employed by the church. Then I went and got a master's in biblical studies. Then I got a PhD in Old Testament. I have been, for the overwhelming majority of my 36 years on this earth, I have been living comfortably within the bubble of conservative Christian subcultures. These references will only mean a handful of things to maybe two of you in this room, but darn it, we're going to whittle it down right now. As a kid, I watched a show called McGee and Me. Anybody? Two of you, three of you, thank you. I read a magazine, this will be even smaller, but Daniel Tosh, the comedian, says, if you can whittle a room down to just one person, then you have succeeded. I don't know if he's right, especially in this moment, but however, I used to read a magazine called Breakaway Magazine for boys. It was part of the focus on the family group. Yes, my sister, my sister read Brio, the girl version. I listened to DC Talk as a rap group, and then as a rock group, and then as a whatever they are now group. I know about Third Day. You, it, it would be impossible for you not to know about Third Day if you ever listened to The Bridge or Caleb because they're on every third song. Uh, I also, my very first concert ever was the Newsboys, a, a Christian group from Australia. They had a rotating drum set. They strapped two guys into two different drum sets and they would just start spinning around playing this song. They still do that today. They've been going on tour for like 30 years and they still have the rotating drum set. They're not on the cusp of ingenuity and creativity creativity, yet they're still floating around and spinning, playing this drum beat. This is the Newsboys. I was in an abstinence skit troupe in my early college years. This is embarrassing. I'm going to say this. I'm going to get in some trouble here. But as I was sitting here reflecting, Kate saying, don't do it. I'm sorry, Kate. I'm going anyway. As I was thinking, I was like, man, we should have had a name for this skit troop that I was in. We were supposed to go to different places and just, you know, help teens not to have sex outside of marriage. And that was the skits that we would do. And they were like shame-based, disgusting skits. I'm sorry about this. But if we did have a name, I think it would have been funny if we were called the master waiters. (laughs) Like many of you, (laughs) moving on, like many of you, Jesus and Christianity and the church, it's what I knew. And looking back, it was cultural more than anything else. We prayed because that's what you do. We went to church because that's what you do. I went to Christian school and wore a tie on Wednesdays for chapel because that's what you do. I was a good kid because that's what you do. I prayed to accept Jesus into my heart because that's what you do if you don't want to burn in hell for all of eternity. That's what you do in this world. Thankfully, at some point, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king, that Jesus is restoring actively this place and that he is inviting us to be a part of that. The good news that we are not disgusting, gross people, but that God has a plan and that God wants to invest in us and involve us in this restoration of the whole world. The good news, it actually began to sink in late in my high school career. And by the grace of God, I moved from being a cultural Christian to becoming a follower 
of Jesus, and to this day I'm still attempting to figure out what that means, how to do that in this world that is ever-changing. From that moment on, I've been on a journey of theological growth and renewed understanding. And if you guys have ever had coffee with me, sometimes we talk about deconstructing and reconstructing. Sometimes we talk about unlearning and relearning because there are parts of our life that we, have, that we think that we have it figured out. And then we come to realize that we don't. All of this, all of this conversation, this prayer, the books, the classes, the divine moments in my life, the experiences that I've had from that time in high school until now has led me to becoming this version of myself, the moderate to progressive Baptist pastor that stands before you this evening. And I know that this theological story of mine, this part of my story, it has value and that for some of you, you resonate with that and that my rehearsal of where I have been, it might even be representative of examples of where you are in your own journey, in your own lived story. Perhaps you came here tonight skeptical. Perhaps you've been coming here for months skeptical. Now, I tend to over-exaggerate this demographic of people because I think that I resonate with them, at least in my own journey. But perhaps you've been reading some things or listening to some things. Perhaps you're at a place now where you're wondering what to do with the Bible, how to read it, how to apply it, how to trust it. Perhaps your theological issues are much more defined, whether they are theoretical in nature, like how to square away the depiction of God in the Old Testament with the depiction of Jesus in the New Testament. For many people, they wrestle with that. This warrior God in the Old Testament and meek and mild Jesus who says, if you get slapped on one side of the face, turn the other cheek. How to bring those two together. Perhaps, though, your issues are more practical, like how to advocate for your LGBT family member or your immigrant neighbor. You're trying to make sense of following Jesus in this world with its, with its issues, with its difficulties, and you're at a place where you need help. Hear me when I say this. These are important questions for our faith, and if you're asking them, let's have coffee. I'd love to sit with you in the midst of whatever it is that you're wrestling with, not because I have found the answers. I certainly haven't in every case, but because I believe that questions are a beautiful and necessary part of a vibrant and intellectually satisfying faith. I have my own. To encourage you further, I believe that God is bigger than the questions that we have. I believe that God can handle them, and I believe that God is not dissatisfied with you for asking them. Perhaps you've come into this place, and you need to hear that. God's not upset with you because you have questions. God's not upset with you because there's things that you don't understand. God's not upset with you because your faith doesn't look like the faith of your parents or the faith that you had back when you were 12 or 13 or 14, back when you were in your own abstinence skit troop, so to speak. I could certainly talk about this part of my story. I love to. I love to talk about theology. I love to talk about the Bible. I've devoted my entire adult life to trying to figure out what in the world is going on with it to make sense of it so that I can live my life in accordance with the word of God, but tonight I want to talk about something different. I don't think this is going to take a long time. I want to talk about a different, more personal part of my life, part of my shadow self, as Richard Rohr would say, that I think might be instructive. And my way into this is by making this claim, and if you've ever talked to me, you know that this is not a revelation, but the claim is this, pastoring is hard. 
I've struggled with a way to come up with how to describe this, but the responsibility that a pastor feels at times, it's immense. We're supposed to provide spiritual care for a community of people, some of whom are facing insurmountable issues, hurts. Some people have experienced these these, uh, sufferings and abuse at the hands of others in the past or currently, and we as the pastors are supposed to provide some sort of guidance or some sort of even just being present in those moments. And many times I found myself thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing And because of the difficulty of this vocation, there seems to be a proclivity among pastors to place their own families on the altar of ministry. That is to put the congregation and their needs ahead of everything else, which means they institute little to no boundaries in their lives. They have their phones in their pockets and they're available 24-7 at any text or call Some of this is just completely unrealistic expectations that are set uh, in in other people's situations. I've never felt this way, but set by the people within the pews. There was a survey done not uh, too many years ago where there was a bunch of different tasks that pastors were supposed to do, and they gave the survey to people, and they could put how long they expected their pastor to do these tasks. And at the end, the average work week of all of the surveys was 80-plus hours that people expected their pastor to be doing, whether it's sermon prep or visitation or prayer all these different things. They had 80 hours a week that was allotted for the tasks of pastoring. For me, it's, it's not that. It's, it's much more the expectations that I put on myself to be with you at every step, to be available to you wherever you are, to be a, a, a powerful and effective minister in your life. But either way, the pastorate and its high calling, it's led to all sorts of issues. And we've seen these. Every person in this room probably has an anecdote about a pastoral scandal. We've seen broken marriages, affairs, neglected and resentful children. We've seen spiritual burnout. We've seen all of these things happen. So very early on going into this ministry, Kate and I knew that if we were going to make it, we needed the help of a professional So we wanted to go seek counseling at least once a month from somebody who could talk us through what it is that we are doing. So I could get advice on how to be a pastor, but how we could get advice on how to be a family that doesn't become a statistic, where my kids don't hate me when they're old, where my wife hasn't left me at any point, where we love each other and we care for each other so that I can be healthy for them and healthy for you as well. And TRP has always been gracious with this. We have a line item in our budget that is allotted for um, pastoral and staff counseling. Most of the people that you see that are a part of the leadership team here are, are in professional counseling because ministry and life is difficult. So for Kate and I, our routine was to go up to Easton about once a month to go into Rise Up Coffee to get a sweet iced caramel uh, latte, to sit in the back and watch the roasters go and just enjoy each other's company for a bit, and then to go into our counselor's room and then talk about anything about our lives together. And for the most part, it was it was fine. In fact, I used to say, uh, whenever this would come up, I'd be quick to say, because my shadow self doesn't want to admit this, I'd be quick to say, yeah, Kate and I are going to counsel. Don't worry, it's just preventative. I'm fine. Kate's fine. We're both fine. Everybody's fine. The church is fine. There's no scandals. We're okay. 
right? That's how we would talk about these things because we don't want anyone to know what's lurking underneath. And as I said, for the most part, we were fine. We're a young couple with young kids that are pulling our hair out collectively. Kate sent me a text about an hour and a half ago and said, no TV for the kids for a week. I'm reading in her tone here. But our kids turn into demon children if they watch TV. You wouldn't think that uh, Dana the Dino Explorer would really do that to somebody. But I tell you, she's not from the good place, I guess, for them. But it was all fine until one day, about a year into our sessions, we're talking and my counselor kind of stops and he looks at me and he says, Josh, I think you're depressed. And I think you've been depressed for a long time. And in that moment, I felt really less fine because I'm on this couch with my wife and this professional who's, who's giving me this diagnosis and it's embarrassing for me as a person. It's embarrassing for my wife to be hearing. It's embarrassing for me to try to make sense of it. And immediately I begin thinking, no, no, I can't, I can't be. I'm a pastor. We're not allowed to be depressed. We're not allowed to have anxiety. We're not allowed to be in a bad place because I have to be a rock. I have to be I have to stand tall for these people. I have to be the one who listens to them talk at coffee. I have to be the one with all the answers. And he continues on and starts talking about medication. And I think even more loudly, no, I can't do that. That would make me weak. That makes me unspiritual. It makes me a poor leader. I just need to pray more. These are all ridiculous things that I would never say to any other person. But when it comes down to me, I say them over myself. The self-doubt, it started to flood in and I begin to say things or ask myself, how can I be the source of comfort if I'm the anxious one? How can I be a spiritual leader if I'm not whole? I felt like a failure and I felt like a fraud. I know because I've been in these moments where I've been sitting across the table from someone and not felt an ounce of their shame because the things that I believed when they said that they're wrestling with depression or anxiety or they're, they're thinking about medication or thinking about changing medication or whatever, I would say things like that's totally normal. Sometimes people are plagued by a chemical imbalance. Sometimes the circumstances are difficult. There's no shame in medication. There's no shame in treatment. God's raised up good Christian doctors to be advocates for their patients. And maybe these conversations are part of that for you and for your journey. But for me, it was all weakness. For me, it was shame. Because for me... I was coming off of a year where I stepped down from a job at a local Christian school while facing accusations about my theological beliefs and I would say my integrity as a teacher. I was having to explain myself to people who I didn't know, who had never spoken to me, and having to defend myself against people who remained anonymous. TRP was impacted by all this. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to respond. In addition, I was still reeling from the death of my friend to leukemia the summer before and not knowing if there was anything that I had done that was enough. I was also in the last year of a PhD program and that deadline was ever looming, that eight-year mark where you have to turn something in or it all goes to naught. I had been studying for 10 years collectively and I was so stressed out about finishing this paper. And all the while I'm at home trying to be a good husband and a good father and it all felt heavy. But as I'm processing this, I thought to myself, if I can't handle all of it, then who am I? 
It's funny, your shadow self that we try so hard to keep tucked in that nobody can see, other people see it. So I came back to, uh, after processing this, the car ride was weird on the way home because I was embarrassed. But I, I had a meeting at some point with the leaders at the church and I said, hey guys, this, this is what happened. This is what they said to me. This is what's going on. And I remember Doug looking at me saying, who, you? You're anxious? What? <laughs> and he was so true because that's, it wasn't news to any of them, but it was news to me. And it wasn't until a year or so later that I actually was able to ask for a prescription. This is a weird sermon, isn't it? I apologize for that. I was scared of the effects for one, but more than that, I was just embarrassed that it might actually help me and prove that that diagnosis was right. Internally, at least, this is a huge part of my story that you now know. And when I walk into this building each and every week and I see that sign that says, whatever your story, there is room for you here, I immediately import into that. Josh, the anxious and depressed follower of Jesus, that is my story and there is room for me here. I've since learned that a lot of us struggle with depression and anxiety. It can be circumstantial. It can only last for a little bit and moments in your life. It can be triggered by traumatic events. It can be lifelong for some of us. Whatever the case, I believe that there is room for you here. Now, for others of you, you don't, you don't identify with any of this at all. Your story is something different, but you still attempt to hide that deepest part of yourself that brings about shame, that shadow self, because you're convinced that if people knew, there would not be room for you here. Perhaps it's an illness that you're scared to share the diagnosis of. Perhaps it's an abuse that you have survived. Perhaps it's your sexual orientation. Perhaps it's your past. Perhaps it's the poor decisions that you have made that hurt hurt others, whatever the case, to the people of TRP collectively, hear me when I say this, may we live out the words of this print, of this sign that we see, and make room for these people because they are us. We all have these things that we want to tuck in and hide that we don't want anyone to know, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has made room for us. So who are we to deny that room to anyone? TRP is a collective of stories, yours, mine, all of ours together. They are all unique and there is room for each and every one of you to be here. I know that this is asking a lot for you guys to trust a random group of people. I understand that for some of you, you might be skeptical as to what we will do with the different parts of your life as you begin to be vulnerable and open up and share. And I'm certainly not advocating that we have an open mic and everybody just comes up here and airs their dirty laundry. That would not be helpful. But please, if, even if you're skeptical of the people, please, I beg of you, begin to believe that you are welcomed first and foremost by a God who has never left you, by a God who loves you and cares for you, who weeps with you when you weep, who rejoices with you when you rejoice, and who says over you whatever your story 
there is room for you here with me in my presence. TRP is a collective of stories and wherever you are in the journey of processing your own, I invite you to put down roots, to begin to trust people, but more importantly, to begin to open yourself up to hearing the truth that God has not and will not let you go.